Newsday presents the Island Ice Podcast with Andrew Gross. And welcome to Island Ice, Newsday's New York Islanders podcast, episode 125. I'm your host, Andrew Gross of Newsday. You can find me on Twitter at agrossnewsday. Islanders Nation is still mourning the passing of Hall of Famer and true Long Islander Clark Gillies, who passed away because of cancer at the age of 67 this past Friday. Uh, Emily Tyree, the director of the Clark Gillies Foundation, told Newsday that per the family's wishes, the memorial and interment for Clark Gillies will be private, but those wishing to pay tribute to Clark Gillies can do so by making a donation to the Clark Gillies Foundation, which helps children in need, and you can do so at www.clarkgillies.org. On the last Island Ice episode, and thank you all for the kind feedback on that one, we we tried to honor Clarkie's memory through discussions with his former teammates and friends Brian Trottier and Chico Resch, as well as former Newsday's Islanders beat reporter and columnist Mark Herman. And if you you haven't listened to uh, that episode, it's available at newsday.com backslash sports and wherever you find your podcasts. And as I said, today is one from the archives as uh, we present a chat I had with Clark in April 2020, just at the start of the pandemic. I was doing a series on the 40th anniversary of the Islanders' first Stanley Cup title and everything that surrounded getting to that point. And I spoke to Clark for well over an hour, and shortly you'll hear almost 40 minutes of that conversation as Clark discusses his teammates. And I really particularly enjoyed the chat we had about my guy Billy Smith, uh, Al Arbor, Bill Torrey, what led Clark to cede the captaincy to Denny Podfan. We went over uh, a, a bunch of different Islander topics. And if it's possible, to both laugh and cry at the same same time. That's what listening back to that interview did for me. Uh, the laughter is in listening to the easy way Clarky tells his stories, uh, punctuated with a few choice bleeped out words, just his honesty in telling those stories and his absolute lack of ego with, with which he talks about his Hall of Fame career. Um, But beyond the obvious of his passing, the tears in listening back to that interview come from wanting to ask Clark so many more questions and and just knowing that's no longer possible. So hopefully this will bring back some memories to you as we hear from the great man himself, Clark Gillies. Where I wanted to start was with the run in 1980. Um, you know, the expectations, maybe that season, obviously, you know, your, your regular season were, was not as good, you know, in, in 79, 80, as it had been the previous two seasons, but the previous two seasons, there were some pretty, you know, crushing playoff losses. And I was just wondering about the motivation going into the 80 playoffs and, and was there any thought of, you know, if we can't get this done, management might look to go in a different direction. Yeah, I, I would say so. I, I think there was a little bit in the back of our minds. But, I mean, getting back to when we finished first overall, I believe, in 78-79 and then 79-80, uh, or 
78-79, and we lost in the playoffs both years. And when we were basically, we were looked at as as the contending team, and we would have to beat Montreal uh, in 79. If we had beat the Rangers, we would have to beat Montreal. But I think we were a good enough team at that time to have beaten Montreal. Um, but we had tremendous regular seasons, and, you know, what did we get? You know, what did we have to show for it when it was all done? Right. I think, I, I don't want to say we, we floated through the regular season. I think we finished fifth overall. Yeah, yeah, you had the fifth which, seed. Yeah, which, which, which wasn't horrible. Um, but I think more than anything, I think uh, we, and I'm sure you've heard this before, but I think we kind of took the lessons we had learned in, you know, 78 when we lost to Toronto and then 79 when we lost to the Rangers. And started to apply ourselves a little more. Now, I, I can't tell you what Bill Torrey was thinking. If we didn't win the Cup in 80, uh, would he have dismantled the whole team? I doubt it. Yeah. But, uh, I'm pretty sure he would have had uh, some pretty good sit-downs with a lot of guys and said, you know, uh, you know, do you want to win or not? Mm-hmm. And uh, I think going into the playoffs in 1980, you know, we had a different mindset. I know... Uh, Having room with Bob Nystrom, I know exactly what he was thinking, and 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 he motivated me and pushed me to do things that I hadn't done in the previous two playoff uh, playoff runs. So uh, it was just a matter of the whole team taking it upon themselves to you know apply apply a little more, uh, uh, take some guys take on a little more responsibility, and. You know, just kind of suck it up and, and say, listen, we we should have won already and we haven't. So what do we need to do to, to get this thing done? And I think we all applied ourselves a little bit more, whether it be on the physical side, scoring-wise. I mean, thinking a little more, play better teams, defense. And then, of course, you know, getting Butchie in, in the, <clears throat> at the trade deadline kind of, kind of made that team a lot more dangerous and uh, a lot better defensively. So, you know, there were a lot of, uh, there were a lot of circumstances that, uh, that changed going into that uh, 1980 playoffs. I mean, you were, you were now dealing with a team that was bound and determined to do the things necessary to make us, to help us win. Was the lesson coming out of that, that Maple Leaf series in 78 and maybe to a lesser extent the, the, the Rangers series in 79 was just that that physicality, you know, also had to be at the forefront, you know, for some of these playoff series? Yeah, we took it on the chin pretty good from everybody uh, when, we, when we lost to Toronto. Uh, main reason we didn't play physical enough. They did some things to some of our guys, like Paul Boss, he got hit. I, don't, I forget who hit him now. I heard him pretty bad in the first or second game up in Toronto, or uh, second or third game up in Toronto. And, you know, we didn't do anything about it. That was probably, that, a lot of that blame probably falls on my shoulders. But um, but we, we going into the playoff, I mean, the first series in, in 80, we beat, uh, we beat Los Angeles. They gave us one little scare, but we, we ended up beating them. And and then we went into Boston, and that's kind of where the whole thing started. Uh, I was rooming with Bobby Nystrom, and we were watching, I think you've heard this story, we were watching the 11 o'clock news before game one up in Boston, and the, the news anchor handed it over to the sports guy, and he asked him what he thought about the series. And the guy says, he said, the Bruins will intimidate the Islanders so badly that 
they won't even want to play. The Bruins will win this in five games. Huh. <laughs> and, and I thought Bobby Nyssen was going to go through the TV after this guy. <laughs> and then he turned on me. He says, Clarky, we're not going to let that happen. He goes, he said, you heard what the guy said. He said, we're not going to be intimidated. He said, you got through this whole series. He said, you got O'Reilly. He says, I got Wensick. Gordy Lane's got some. Gary Howitt's got somebody. We all he, got, he picked out somebody for everybody on the team to be responsible for. Um, and that's exactly the way it unfolded. I mean, I got two fights with. First game was pretty quiet. Second game, I got two fights with O'Reilly. Bobby got in a fight with with uh, Wensick. Gary Howitt got in. We had a bench carrying ball at the end of the first period. We come out of Boston. We're up two games to nothing, and then. Came back home and I had two more fights with O'Reilly. Bobby was fighting with guys. I mean, it was a tough series, but we were a different team. And I think we ended up, you know, we won. We went up three nothing, and then we lost game four because of O'Reilly wouldn't quit. We thought we had beat the crap out of him enough that he might quit, but he ended up getting the tying goal with about twenty seconds to go in the game and winning overtime. Then we went back to Boston and beat him four to one in game five. So that I think was uh, kind of got the rest of the league kind of sit up and take notice that holy cow this team had never done that before and uh, we had just kind of pounded the, the, the big bad Bruins into submission and went on the next series we played Buffalo and I went in six games that was a lot less physical than, uh, than the Bruins series and then we had to go up against Philly and I mean plus let's not forget not only were we playing much more physical, but we had a tremendously powerful offensive team. I think that year in 1980, we we were number one in, in power play. Mm-hmm. If I'm not mistaken, I think we set a record for most goals on the power play, uh, which has been broken since then, obviously. But, you know, so playing against the Flyers in the final, uh, they really couldn't uh, afford to take too many penalties because it seemed like every time they got a penalty, we scored. So it kind of took a little bit of their a little bit of their game away from them. Yeah, I won't say it wasn't a physical series. It was it was gut-wrenching. I mean, every game, it just, you know, you couldn't sleep, couldn't eat. You know, it was, it was physically draining in, 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 from that respect. But, but we went out and played. I mean, we just, we just played with a, with a lot more enthusiasm, a lot more confidence, and a lot more aggressiveness, I guess. You mentioned the scoring and the power play and, and, and you know, special teams and all that. How, how did Brian Trottier, how did Trotz really elevate his game, you know, through that playoff run? I'm not so sure Brian had to elevate anything. I, yeah. he, was always, he was always very consistent. I didn't play with him and Trotz in that playoff because uh, when Butch came to the team in 1980, um, Al came to me and said, I want you to play with Butch. Because mm-hmm. um, I was playing with Brian. I was left wing with Brian and Mike up to that point, and I said, you know, Al, whatever, whatever you want me to do. I mean, was I a little disappointed I was getting taken off the number one line? But, yeah, I, I'd be lying to you if I said I wasn't. But, you know, I basically said, you know what, uh, if this is going to make us a better team, and I think it did, um, go, I'll go ahead and do it. But, uh, but, but Brian, and, Brian and Mike, as a pair, I think elevated their games. Right. Um, Maybe not so much individually, although, you know, um, if you, you've got a pretty good advantage. Uh, I used to say that that hockey team 
with Billy Smith in goal, I think we're one playoff series. We're giving up just over two goals a game and averaging five goals for. So, you know, when you got the likes of Trache and Bossy and Potvin, you know, and then go down to our line, me and Goring, and even our third line with Nystrom and Merrick and, and John Tonelli, pretty well-rounded scoring. That's a really good third line. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you can't even call them, you know. Yeah. A third line. They were they were actually the checking line, and they they probably outscored every line they played against. Huh. Uh, it was it, we had a very uh, well balanced team, and and we Al could for the most part he could run four lines and and not have to worry too much. So we were very confident in our in our skill level. Right. Uh, it was just some of the little things like the the physicality that we had to take care of, and, and we I think we showed everybody we could do that. And the ones we won, I mean, it was, you know, now that you've proven you can do it and everybody knows you can do it, the idea is to try and go out and do it again, which fortunately we were able to do for four straight years. So, mm-hmm. and I think one year we only, the biggest scare we had over that four year time frame was probably in 80, in the, in the third cup when we almost lost to Pittsburgh in the first round. Right. And <laughs> we, we got a couple of lucky breaks and ended up beating them in the in the first in the first series where we should have destroyed them. We ended up hanging on by the skin of our teeth in Game Five, and uh, that was kind of a wake up call because uh, nobody nobody at that point, especially in the first round against Pittsburgh, did anybody think that our run was going to stop against them. Right, and it almost did, and so I think that kind of gave us a. Kind of shook us up a little bit and said, "Look, hey boys, let's get back to work here. Uh, if you want to win your third one, you're going to be allowed, have to be a lot better than that." So, hey, um, one difference, I guess, in the '80 run was the fact that Al went to Billy pretty much exclusively. You know, after you know Game Two of that first round series, you know, he alternated Billy and Chico the first two games, and then it was pretty much Billy. Um, and, and it, and it stayed like that, you know, through the playoffs, through, through your whole run. Um, how, how did you see, you know, wh- what did that do for the team? And, and what was it, what was it like playing in front of a goalie like Billy Smith? <laughs> um, yeah, getting back to that, that was, Chico was pretty much the number one goaltender up, up to that point. Uh, if you had to pick one or the other, he got the most playing time. Uh, and then uh, something happened when, when, when he faltered a little bit and, and Smitty got put in there. Smitty never looked back. He, mm. he just, it was like, you want me to go in and play? You want me to play under these conditions? Then I want you to play me, basically is what he said. I'm not going in there for one game coming up. I'm going to go in and I'm going to stay in there. And I don't know what the conversations were between Al and Smitty, but I'm sure the they were pretty heated because they used to get after each other pretty good. Yeah. And you never saw Smitty in a morning skate. All the rest of us would be there and Smitty wouldn't be there. And in the beginning, it just kind of bothered guys. Why do we have to come down here and go skate around and, and Smitty's at home sleeping? Right. And it was like, it was kind of like mind your own business, you know, like that's, <laughs> what, that's, that's what, that's, that's how Smitty prepares. I don't. I didn't know anybody could sleep that much. But um, Smitty would. He get to the hotel. We stayed over at the East Norwich Inn, and there was right off the main lobby there. There was a little cottage, just a freestanding building, 
It had kind of a little suite in it. There was a bedroom and a kitchen and stuff, and that's where Smitty stayed. And we'd get back, we'd go down to the, on the day of the game. I needed to go down for the day of the game for no other reason than I was going stir crazy at the hotel. I had to go down and do something to get my mind off the game that was coming up that night. But, um, Smitty's preparation was he'd wake up about 11 o'clock, jump in the shower. We'd get back to the hotel for about a, for a 12 o'clock meal. Smitty'd be sitting there. He'd eat his meal. He'd go back, get back in bed and go back to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's the way he prepared then he would get up at 4 o'clock something like that and he would go down to the, the rink and by the time I got there he'd be sitting in his stall with everything on except his shoulder pads his chest protector he'd have his pads on he'd just be sitting there getting his mind ready to go out and do what he had to do which was more than just stopping pucks because as you know Smitty was a miserable I, I <laughs> Tell you what, I, I would have cracked him over the head with my stick if I was playing against him. But, uh, some of the shit that he did, the guys in front of the network, was brutal. Yeah. But, but you know, the more it happened, the more it went on, the, the further away they stood. So it helped, you know, Smitty helped his own cause. But um, what was he like to have in the net every night? I mean, it was great because yeah. he, he knew he was... You know, intimidation is a big part of the game, and Smitty would intimidate other players. The guys, you know, you think the goalie's not going to be that intimidating, but they were so afraid of him because they thought he was completely out of his mind, and he was going to, you know, he was—he's going to hurt me if I get near that net. He's going to hurt me. Yeah, which, which he did to a lot of guys. Yeah, and that was a huge, a huge plus for him. And by the way, they were sort of right when they thought he was out of his mind. Because for many years, I thought he was out of his mind. But uh, he's he's such a different person now that the games are over and stuff. He's yeah, just, you know, <laughs> he's so he's so docile now. It's not even funny. But, uh, completely different person. Um, but we loved him like that. That's the way he had to be. He had to be just, you know. He had to be, and they had to realize that he was capable of doing anything to them. And I think that was a scary thought. I saw what he did to a bunch of guys. I mean, that was, that was, he took some serious cracks at a lot of guys. But at the end of the day, it's what made him such a good goaltender because he had a lot of room. He, he basically saw everything. Then nobody got in front of him. Nobody got near him. Yeah, and he was able to see the game a whole lot better than most other goalies. So. Well, and, and he had—I mean, he also had some pretty good goalie chops to boot. I mean, he was a decent goalie, you know. But <laughs> but seeing seeing the puck certainly helps. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean that's why that's why he saw the puck. Is anytime you you did you took your life in your hands and you got within sticks reach of him. Um, I saw him spear Lindy Ruff in the face and in, in against Buffalo in nineteen eighty. Uh, Lindy made a mistake in getting right at the end of Smitty's butt end, and he butt ended him right in the face. And then, you know, the thing, he, he wasn't afraid to do it. I mean, the thing with, with Gretzky in, in, up in Edmonton, when he, Gretzky was coming around the net, and Smitty got that little chopstick, and he swung it down, and he hit Gretzky. I don't think he hurt him, but Gretzky made it look like he hurt him. And then he did it again to, uh, to uh, what's his name, Anderson. And, and then when and the play, when we were playing Edmonton in the final game, when Anderson went to the front of that, he, he, Smitty made it look like he took his feet off from under him and chopped him or something. And Anderson got a penalty and Smitty didn't get anything. And, <laughs> and he said, two can play that game. 
Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, he was he was he was a beauty. Oh my god. Um, but and the things he used to do the, to not not shake hands with the guys after the playoffs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it's just things that you just shake your head. But that was that was Smitty, you know. And he wasn't going to let anybody change his mind. You know, it's like Smitty. You got to shake hands with the guys. No, I don't. <laughs> No, I don't. These guys have been trying to kill me for seven games, and now i got to go shake their hand? <laughs> you can kind of see his reasoning. Yeah. Because, you know, every one of them wanted to hurt him. And all of a sudden, because we win, he turned the switch off. He's like, not a chance. Not a chance. Hey, I, I talked to uh, Denny Potvin the other day, and uh, I, I was asking him, I, I know Jean, you know, was reacquired, you know, before the season. Um, you know, he had been traded away, and then he comes back for that season. And I was just wondering, you know, what what you saw, you know, what was Jean's role in, in, in you know, Denny? Obviously, you know, he succeeded you as captain that year and, you know, becoming more of a team leader. How, how much did Jean, you know, really help that transformation there? Um, well, I mean... Patsy, uh, John Pop, and Patsy was part of that power play. Yeah. Um, Denny and him were, were the two main guys back on the power play uh, during that 1980 season. Um, Patsy had a, you know, Patsy had a big role um, on that hockey team. Uh, you know, part of the first two cups. Um, and, you know, what what he did to motivate Denny, I, I I don't know. Yeah. Um, I'm sure Denny loved getting Potsy. Where did Potsy got traded? Where did he go? He went he to, went to uh, uh, the Cleveland Cleveland, Cleveland Barons. Right. Uh, right. Like the one place probably no one would want to get traded to, I would imagine, right? <laughs> no, no, absolutely not. No. Um, yeah, and then he came back. I didn't realize that we had traded him and we brought him back. Yeah. No, I, hey, listen, I would have loved playing with my brother, too. Yeah. Uh, it's just kind of added, I guess, added motivation, if you want to call it that, to to know every night you're going to go out there and, you know, get to play with your brother and have him motivate you and vice versa. Um, mm-hmm. But they were a good pair. I, I mean, Patsy was, Patsy was a very good player. There's no doubt about that. Uh, yeah. He didn't get the notoriety as, as much as Denny did, of course. But right. um, as a matter of fact, for the longest time, they just called him Denny's brother. So... <laughs> <laughs> How Which we, had, we actually called him that once in a while to piss him off too. So, <laughs> How oh yeah, your daddy's brother, right? Yeah. In your mind, I mean, you know. Uh... People, you know, when they talk about great defensemen, they talk about Bobby Orr, obviously, and, and then Denny always seems to be, you know, one of the next names that that comes up. You know, just what was your take on on, on how good Denny was at, you know, at, at kind of both ends of the ice? Obviously, yeah, both great players. I, I you know, where they, what are the top five that you know I have ever seen? I. I I don't think Denny would be too upset if I if I said I, I thought Orr was was very special. Yeah, sure. Um, but at the same time, uh, there are things that Denny did that that Bobby couldn't do. You know, Bobby's greatest asset was his ability to skate. Um, you want to compare somebody to Bobby 
more than Benny, it would probably be a guy like Paul Coffey. Yeah. Who, who's one of his greatest attributes and he's still a tremendous, tremendously fluid skater at, at almost 60 years old. So, or is 60. Um, you know, to grab that puck and be able to carry it up the ice like that. Denny's, I think, a couple of things that made Denny so great were his ability to pass the puck. And one of the things that uh, also made him different from the other from the other two, Coffee and Orr, was that he had a tremendous mean streak in him and the ability to really <laughs> and not worry about it too much, the ability to hurt people. Yeah. Denny was had vicious when it came. He had one of the best hip checks that I've seen. And uh, if you weren't careful, uh, you were going to the orthopedic surgeon the next day. And uh, and Denny, Denny had very little conscience when it came to that stuff. It was like that was he was out there to hit, and if it if it happened and the guy got hurt, it didn't bother him one bit. I don't think anyway. I never saw him. I never saw him show any real remorse. Yeah. One of the interesting, most interesting hits I saw him put on was when he hit Bent Gustafson in Washington. It was kind of a shin-on-shin type hit. It was very close to being a knee-on-knee. And Gustafson's leg broke, and Danny's didn't. And it was, it was like, that is what he was capable of doing. And you just had to be so aware of the fact that Danny was on the ice. And he was pretty good with his stick at the same time so you know tremendous knowledge of the game how you know what to do in certain situations he played in all the big situations obviously um made our power play one of the greatest power plays ever he butch goring talks about denny's ability to denny would just step take one step up from behind the net and just drill a pass on the on the right on the blade of your stick at center ice and it was the ability to get out of our own end with passes like that made him, you know, just a tremendous asset. So uh, you go on and on about, you know, who was the best, who did this, who did that. But for, for many, many years, Dennis Poffin made us, was part of what made us a great hockey team. He was a very big, very big part of that. So um, I'll leave it up to guys way smarter than me to figure out who the best ever was or how you rate them. But, yeah. uh, he was he was the best we had, I can tell you that. And uh, you know, four four Stanley Cups and almost five uh, will tell you what he meant to our team. Um, tell me about your game that season. You know, uh, you know, how happy were you with the way you know your your season developed? And uh, you know, obviously, you know, the, there's the story of you know you had been captain and you know that transition to Denny. Did did that did that help you that season? Well, one of the reasons I, I gave it up, I just, I don't know. I just, just seemed to, I didn't think I needed that to be a difference maker on our team. I guess something to that effect. Right. Um, I felt like I was more of a, you know, maybe I wasn't right for it all along. I, I have no idea. I just, I just felt like it, it stopped me from being the guy I wanted to be. I wanted to, just be this big happy-go-lucky have a lot of fun in the locker room when we weren't playing get out there during the games and make a difference by throwing a hit getting in a fight scoring a big goal the, the other thing was was just 
I don't know quite how to put it other than the fact that it was, I, I almost at some points felt like I was more of a uh, social coordinator than anything else. Cause you know, as captain, you got to organize all the team parties Yeah. Uh, and team parties were getting very expensive because I would organize the parties. I'd pay for them ahead of time and I try and collect the money from the on the team. They wouldn't give me the money. <laughs> So it ended up costing me a lot of money being captain, never mind <laughs> a lot of stress. But um, that's a bit of a joke. But, yeah. uh, but not really a joke because it did happen a lot where I get stiff for a bunch of the money. But, um, you know, stuff like during the game, you know, I used to kind of have fun with it. Because Al would go, he said, go ask the referee what the hell that call was all about. And the referee would say, well, you tell Al that he tripped him. I said, that's what I thought. And I would go back to Al and I go, Al, you got two minutes for tripping. <laughs> <laughs> and Al, Al would kind of look at me like, that's it? I go, well, you <laughs> tripped him, Al. What do you, what do you want? <laughs> and I used to, I did have some fun with it in that respect. But, uh, and then after, you know, we lost, we lost in 78 against Toronto and then you lose in 79 against the Rangers and you kind of say am I doing the right job I mean how much how much am I to blame for this did I not motivate the guys did I not do what I could while I was wearing the C and, and maybe it was more maybe it was more of a superstitious thing than anything else like we haven't won and we got to give it a try with somebody else and mm-hmm. I actually went to Al and I'm, I'm the one that said to Al I said I don't I want to give this up, and I said I think the guy for the job is Denny. Yeah, I hadn't even spoke to Denny about it. I, I just that was my feeling. I went. I said I need to talk to you, and I went. And I told him I wanted to give up the C, and I said, and I said I think the obvious choice is, is Denny. You know what? I I didn't look at Denny a whole lot more, a whole lot differently uh, because he had the C in a sweater when we went out there night after night. Yeah, uh, I always knew. I always knew I was going to get. Uh, a great effort out of Denny. You know, I, I think most of us, I think we all, um, you can go down the list of guys. I mean, leaders on that team, Trotz, Boss, they were all leaders. They were both leaders in a big way. They had to go out and play hard every night or else we weren't going to win. So you, you followed their lead. Uh, Bobby Nystrom, uh, you know, Dwayne Sutter. Um, these are all guys that had tremendous roles on the team. Uh, myself, I knew what I had to do every night, so I didn't need necessarily need a sweater to motive a, a C on my sweater to motivate me. So you know, everybody just everybody just did their job. I mean, I listen. You you could have had no C on a sweater on that on that team, and and it, and it wouldn't have made a big difference. I'm not underscoring Denny's uh, captaincy by any stretch, but you know what I'm saying. We had guys that that were sort of self motivated and were winners and, and knew what winning was all about and, and how to go about winning. I don't need to see to do what is expected of me. I did say after we won the cup, maybe I should have waited one year and I could have. <laughs> <laughs> uh, not really. Yeah. <laughs> uh, We've touched on this in the past as well, but is there any way to encapsulate exactly how important that that leadership duo of Bill Torrey and Al Arbor was t- to the whole puzzle here and they were two pretty special guys I, uh, 
I'd only had one coach for, for 12 years, and that was Al. And one and one general manager for 12 years, that was Bill. And, and, you know, you just have total respect for the job that both of them did. I mean, Bill and his ability to kind of see when there was something missing and, and or when there was something not going right. And, and he only came in the locker room maybe once a year. And it usually wasn't pretty when he came in the locker room to say a few words because uh, he left most of that stuff up to Al. But uh, uh, when Bill came in the room, you knew that uh, you better get your ass in gear because uh, there wasn't one guy he picked on. It was uh, He was picking on the whole team when he came in there and, and getting a message to the whole team, just not a couple of guys or whatever. He, he would do that stuff individually. He just left it up to Al to, to handle the locker room. It was usually when we were kind of going through a, a slow period that you'd see Bill, and it didn't last very long after he was in there. But, um, you know, his ability to, to build the team, to, to add guys like Gordy Lane out of the blue, um, to make a trade for Butch Goring when we didn't think anything was going to happen, all of a sudden Butch is on our team. Uh, as I said, Gordy Lane. Uh, Gordy Lane was playing in Washington. I, Gordy was, you know, a pretty tough defenseman, I mean, Skill-wise, uh, certainly not an overabundance of skill. But Bill saw something there that was going to make a difference on our on our defense defense core. And what happened was he got he put him put Smitty and Gordy in front of the nest, and nobody came. They <laughs> <laughs> thought it was bad with just Smitty there. When Gordy got there, it got even worse. But. Um, but Gordy put a, a fear factor in a lot in a lot of guys on the other team. I, I wasn't really afraid of him when I played against him, but there were guys that were terrified of Gordy. He got so much room, he was able to show me things that I didn't think he had in him. So another just uncanny move by Bill Torrey and our scouting staff. And then again, in, in uh, I think it was 80, 82, when we were going for the third cup, he trades for he trades Chico, Bobby Larmer, and Steve Tambellini for Mike McEwen. Yeah, who I thought had got banished from the league when he when they sent him to Colorado. And Mike McEwen comes in and uh, and, and he absolutely ignites our power play. I mean, just weird. I mean, the way the way things, the trades, and the moves that Bill made during that four or five year run was was was. Something I've never seen anything like it before. I've, I've had opportunity to talk with Lou Lamarillo, and and I see a lot of I see a lot of Bill and Lou Lamarillo. I really do. Yeah, no, I've I've, I've heard that yeah, the, the 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 Lamarillo trots, you know, team is is yeah. is, is is a little bit of a reminder. But um, yeah, yeah, I would I would agree with that. I would agree with that. Yeah, I like the way Barry handles himself behind the bench symbolic of the way Al used to handle himself behind the bench um, and to see Lou up there and, and the way he just watches the game with such intensity is, is pretty impressive we, we, we talked about the build up to you know you know a couple of seasons of playoff disappointments and you know you, you make it through you know you finally have a win a semifinal round against the, the Buffalo Sabres and you get into the cup final against the Flyers the first two games are in Philly you know you split them an overtime win and then they had you know I think they beat you pretty bad game two 
What what do you remember about you know coming back to Game Three at Nassau Coliseum, finally getting a a, a Cup final game at, at the old barn? <laughs> uh, I remember being probably as high as the, as high as I've ever been before Game Three. Yeah, um, Stanley Cup final. You know, with all the fanfare that goes on, you got all the TV people there. You got just the the atmosphere is, is off the charts. And then, you know, coming out for warm up was was amazing. People in the stands, and you got to you know trying to control your emotions so you don't get you don't burn yourself out in the warm up. And then coming out to start the game. And the roar from the fans and the, the hair standing up in the back of your neck. Uh, it's just, you know, I don't know. There's, I've never experienced anything like that. And, and we got to experience that same feeling many, many times. But I think I think the first time, that first Stanley Cup final, when, you, when you're coming on the ice and you're, you know, not so much in Philly because, you're, you know, you're, I don't care what it was like they it was still a matter of survival going into philly no matter what time uh how good you were or whatever but um to get back home in front of your hometown fans for the first time in the stanley cup finals was was absolutely sick it was as i said one of the greatest feelings that i've ever had in uh in all the things that i've done in my life so and they're they're re-showing uh game six tonight on msg so Oh, uh, of our 1980? Yeah, yeah. Oh, is that right? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe I'll put a little bet then. I think I know who wins that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Side bet that it goes to overtime. <laughs> but, yeah, that's what I said. I, I bet my wife yesterday. I said, I bet you 100 bucks Tiger comes back and wins this thing. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, if I hadn't seen it, then couple hundred times they probably watch it but yeah yeah, um, yeah no it's although you know what every time i watch it is there's things that you know you just forget happens mm-hmm. um the one thing that we always we bust bobby nystrom's a lot he said you know he's came obviously got that biggest goal that in, 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 in the islander franchise in overtime and I said, well, shit, no wonder you were the one that scored. I said, you didn't play the first half of the game. You had, you had more energy than anybody else. <laughs> in the penalty box for about 30 minutes that game. I said, we all would have had enough energy at that point if we were you. Maybe a silly question, but how much fun was that Stanley Cup parade, that first one? <laughs> well, uh, I remember getting in those little cars. I forget where we where we staged that, where the cars came from. I, I think we were over by the by the bus depot over there somewhere. Yeah. I don't know, that whole place, that whole area has changed so much. But, uh, uh, yeah, getting in those antique cars and driving through the crowd. Uh, we got motorcycle cops, you got cops on horse, and it got pretty wild. Uh, we didn't realize how fired up the fans were going to be. And, uh, and then <clears throat> once we finally worked our way into the Coliseum grounds there and then came out the security gate on the north side of the building and they had that little, that little snow fence there and they had a stage set up for us. And all of a sudden the people started pushing and pushing and pushing and they, people were starting to get crushed into that snow fence. 
and we said, you know, we got to get out of here. But that was that was pretty intense. The people were were really into it, and then obviously the next year they didn't make that same mistake. They put us in the trucks and we went down Hempstead Turnpike. But yeah, um, yeah, all of those things were, were pretty neat. I must admit, <clears throat> full disclosure, most of us were. Well, I was I was gonna last ask you how long did the celebration go? How many days? <laughs> uh, with good intensity, probably a couple of weeks. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, you couldn't keep that pace up all summer long, or you didn't want to anyway. Yeah. But, uh, uh, it was a pretty fun time. There's no doubt about that. We didn't get much sleep for the first three or four days. I know that. Yeah. <laughs> Go golfing all day, come home, barbecue, party some more and stuff. Oh, and, uh, yeah. No, there was, there was some, some good times yeah. had by all back in those days. <laughs> hey, Clark, listen, it's always great to reminisce with you, and uh, I really appreciate the help with this. My pleasure. All My right. pleasure, Andrew. All right. Hey, listen. Um, yeah. Um, I, I you got to find something to do every day now that they're not playing. So yeah. your job just got tougher. I hope you enjoyed listening to that one from the archives. And again, I just want to pass along my deepest and sincerest condolences to Clark's wife, Pam, and his entire family. And again, if you want to catch up on uh, the previous Clark Gillies theme podcast episode or for any of our news or for any of Newsday's content on Clark Gillies, uh, and the Islanders, please go to newsday.com backslash aisles. And I know I said this at the end of the last episode, but on the next episode, we will definitely get back to current hockey talk. And until then, I'm Andrew Gross. You can find me on Twitter at agrossnewsday. Please stay safe and healthy, everybody. <laughs>